Hello, and welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Martin Wilsh, your host. And before we get going, just a couple of things, uh, things that are coming up. Well, first of all, I should say the blog this week by Charles Lear is A UFO and Creatures in Garson, Ontario. And I might as well say that next week I have Kevin Day coming up. Um, and I should always say that in the beginning of the show because I know not everyone listens to the full show. So, but if anyone wants to know who the uh, guests are and our blogs are and all that, all they have to do is go to our website, podcastufo.com, and on the right sidebar, you can sign up for an email blast. It only comes out once a week and it says who the guest is. So, uh, and it's real simple. Put your email address in, send it, then you confirm your email. That's it. So uh, a lot of things going on for, well, I just found out just before the show that um, there's a category two storm hitting Nova Scotia. (laughs) And uh, next weekend, I'm going to be heading up that way. I'm going to be talking at Shag Harbor on October 1st in Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. Uh, And so that's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully the storm won't be so bad this weekend up there. But so after that, just a lot of things, like I said, a lot of things going on. I'm coming back and I'm going to be doing the premiere of the Ariel School. I'm going to be the podcaster there in that event. And that's going to be live in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. It's a big 800-seat theater. Uh, Lots of people coming from all over the country. It should be a real exciting event. And uh, then uh, the week after that, uh, the show on the 11th, I'm going to be in Phoenix. And I'm going to be doing a live show there with uh, James Fox right there in Phoenix. And then I'm going to do a roundtable. I know there's going to be a lot of people that are the speakers are going to be involved in that. And it's a really great lineup. And I suggest uh, you get your tickets. It's at a beautiful resort there. It's a wonderful place. I can't wait to see it. And uh, it's October 12th. I believe it starts on the 12th and right runs right through that weekend. So check out the International UFO Congress in Phoenix. And if you're going to be there, I am getting some emails. Uh, people want to meet up with me, and that's great. Please do send your emails at martin at podcastufo.com. Anyone can support the show. All you have to do is go to our website again, uh, podcastufo.com, and that's up on the menu bar. If you can't support the show, we still appreciate you watching and listening. And this show does come out as a podcast. And also the audio blogs come out as a podcast as well on any, about any podcast feed out there. So uh, our guest tonight is Ben Hurl. I had the pleasure of meeting him back in 2019 in Phoenix. He's a great guy. He's from down under. And I just was uh, poking around today and I realized that he knows something about the, uh, the Kelly Cahill case. And that has always uh, intrigued me. And uh, so I asked him just very, I think it was just a few minutes ago, if he could talk about that case. Uh, And you'll understand why I think it's such an intriguing case. And I'm going to bring in our guest now. Welcome, Ben. Welcome back, I should say. Oh, g'day, Martin. Great to see you. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're in the future. You're tomorrow there in Australia. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, thank you for showing up. It's in the morning over there, uh, down there, I should say. Or is that how you say it? I know they say down under. I mean, that's the common term, right? Yeah. Well, Australians don't sort of generally talk about that as a term. And it's, it's, it's kind of like one of those sort of cliches that's yeah, out there. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, if you look at planet Earth, you know, is there an up or is there a down? I suppose it's us that think about it in those terms, don't we? So, yeah, I guess we are down <laughs> yeah. under. But I mean, you don't have to look up or anything, you know, strange like that. It's yeah, <laughs> you're not looking <laughs> no. up at the United States. But anyway, uh, yeah, we haven't uh, got a rusty blood to the head because our heads are our heads are on the underside. Yeah, that's right. And I understand the water drains backwards counterclockwise under the equator. So I mean, we yes. have weird things like that. But I got to tell you, the uh, interesting thing about Australia is when I look at Google uh, uh, Analytics. And I look at my listening audience, and and sometimes we get up to eighty thousand downloads per audio show. Um, Australia is like the second or third, you know, country as far as people listening. You have something like twenty six million people. It's not a huge country, but a lot of people are into this topic. Obviously, there. 
absolutely. I mean, I think in in the in the twenty first century, the the interest in the UFO phenomenon has, has exploded. Yeah, and I, and I think you'll find that you know since the the coming out of the Tic Tac UFO and the and the admission from the from the US Navy, I think that that has really made a lot of people who would have seen it as still a marginal um, interest go, wow, this really is it really is a big thing. And recently down here, we've had the um, Ross Coulthard Spotlight Special, which was oh, yes. on Channel 7 down here. And that was, yeah. that was probably one of the biggest and best moments in Australia for someone who's been following UFOs for as long as I have and a lot of other people, that, that it's been taken seriously because all too often it's a slow news day topic. Yeah, <laughs> and they treat it with you know with the giggle factor, and and I've been on I've been on live TV and been treated with giggle factor, and it is absolutely terrible. And I don't I think those days are probably just about over. That's right. And uh, Ross is great. He's doing this this really nice uh, YouTube uh, show with uh, uh, Bryce Stable. Both great. They're highly intelligent. I love to hear them talk. And uh, yeah, I've been watching that. And there's some great stuff that they do. Yeah. And, and yes. uh, you know, plus he he is, you know, he brings a lot of credibility to the topic, whether it's Australia or there. But, you know, here you have a, a great journalist, award-winning journalist, 60 Minutes fame and all that. And uh, taking this seriously, it is a great it is a great thing for for UFOs in Australia. It certainly is, and 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 that interest has just has just exploded. And now you can get this information from so many sources. You know, like back when I started, there was you know a couple of UFO groups around the place, hardly any podcasts, and now it's just is a there's a complete menu of it out there on the internet. You can get this information everywhere, and I think Australians are now seeing that as a as a good thing, and it's not something that and you're not treated like a you know like some sort of crazy person when you when you express an interest in it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel much less worried about what people think when it comes to this topic, when I'm in my professional world, I'm not so worried about it anymore. You know, I mean, it, it's not, it's not a, a big deal to even, you know, broach the subject with a, a client that, that I'm appraising, you know, furniture and artwork or something or whatever. Exactly. You know? I'll, I'll, I've been loud and proud for years with it, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and, you know, even, even in job interviews, it's come up as an interest, you know, like I, you know, I've never, never held back from talking about it because people are going to accept you for who you are. Wow. Um, in a job interview. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, it's, I've mentioned it in job interviews that people say, what do you do for hobbies? Not golf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great stuff. I know you do yeah. hiking because I've seen pictures of when you've been out hiking. It's beautiful. Uh, oh, yeah. But a, lot, yeah. a lot of hiking out here. And I'm always, um, but, but, there's, but there's an agenda there, Martin. I'm either going somewhere where where Yowies have been seen, like a like a Yowie location, which is our Bigfoot version, yeah. right? or I'm going to a to a UFO location so I can you know soak it all in and take it. So a lot of it I base it around the interest anyway. But it's great to combine the outdoors and UFOs. How about that? Now, the Yowie. Um, yeah, I always thought that was a. It's kind of funny. There's names for it all. Yeti. You name all over the yeah. world different yeah. names for it. But are there a lot of you know? I know this. This is about UFOs, but are there a lot of people claiming they see them there? Extraordinary record of Yowie encounters, just the same as the UFO tapestry. Really, huh. a great. And where I live here in eastern Victoria, it's wilderness. So there's been some really great encounters just on my back doorstep. But right across Australia, right up the you know even the desert areas, right up through New South Wales, every state has got a Yowie history. How about that? Amazing. Yeah. Now, I'll, let me ask you this while we're talking about this. Any um, encounters where there's a Yowie and a UFO together or not, some type of event like that? Not that I've, not that I've seen in my research uh, at this point in time. Like I've, I've explored a lot, of, a lot of different events, um, but I haven't come across anywhere where that's combined not to say that they haven't happened or that if you hopped on to Yowie Hunters, for example, and look through their vast catalogue of reports, that you could find that type of, that type of interaction. Uh, and in my area here, it's been people basically being scared witless by wow. what they've seen when they've been out in the, uh, in, in the wilds. And that's something. Well, there was a, there's a case, as I was mentioning, that I really would love to talk about. 
And that is, and I know it happened, I believe, back in 1993 or something like that. It's the Kelly Cahill case. I yep. had heard about this early on when I was looking into the subject. And I just thought it was just fascinating. And I've talked to a few people in Australia, and I can never remember the details of the person's name. And then um, today I was like, oh, that's the name, the Kelly Cahill case. So, uh <laughs> For uh, we do have a lot of people that are new to the subject that are paying attention to this show now. So, um, and a lot of people uh, that are in the UFO or researching UFO topics uh, do not know anything about this case. So, if you could, can you go through that case? Well, yeah, no, no problem at all. I sort of it it, it, came, it happened on on the seventh of August. 1993. Now, first of all, August is deep winter here in Australia. That's right. the coldest, the coldest month of the year. It's mm -hmm. freezing here at that at that time. And in 1993, it kind of was around the similar time to the X Files. So you know, it, it sort of it had that wonderful. It, it sort of the case occurred at just the right time because that was another period in history where UFOs got a vast amount of interest. And I sort of became interested in it when I had, had sort of seen it in our local media here. And then Kelly had actually written a book about it. Hmm. And I got the book and I read it from cover to cover. And I thought to myself, this is an incredible, an incredible story. Uh, what's so special about this case is the fact that you had independent vehicles to the same event, three cars, six people, and a football field-sized UFO hovering out over a field. That's the, that's the basics of it. it. It goes into a lot more. So it was a very, very uh, extraordinary case, not just in Australia, perhaps even in the world, because most often encounters are usually just a single vehicle or a single person or a small group of people all connected to each other. This was the first case that offered independent witnesses, and that... And that's where the media here really, really got so interested in it. And it became a huge story. And overnight, Kelly became this instantly recognisable person, in not just to people who are into the paranormal, but for even in general society, this, this story became very big. And, but it has issues, and that is, and that is the, the problem with it too, because for all the potential that it offered, it came up short ultimately. And we'll talk about we'll talk about how that how that happened. So what actually happened? So Kelly lived not far from where I live, actually. She's only about an hour and a half uh, west of here is where she was living in Latrobe Valley. And Latrobe Valley is about another hour and a half outside of Melbourne, which is the, the capital city of Victoria. And, and on that particular day, on the 6th, actually, she was driving up with her husband to visit a friend. That's Kelly. <laughs> mm. And they were driving up in the in the late evening and they were heading up into what's called the Dandenong Ranges or the, or the Dandenongs is what we call it here, but it's basically a mountain range to a little small town up there called Mombok. And she had a friend up there and they were going up there to visit her friend and her friend's daughter was having a birthday party and Kelly and her friend were going to go off and play bingo and her, and her husband was going to go do visit other friends. But on the way up, they were driving along and she saw a row of orange lights suspended out over a field in the, as in, the late, in the late evening. She saw it. And she mentioned it to her husband and he sort of just dismissed it and kept on driving. And when they got up to her friend's house, the, the incident sort of, like, you know, they spoke about, you know, oh, we saw something, ha-ha, and then they got on with their night. And... They didn't get home until about 11.30, so they'd had a pretty good night and the lights had been forgotten about. And at, at 11.30, Kelly and her husband, Andrew, they, they, that's, a, that's not his real name, they hopped, in the, um, they hopped in their car and they started to drive back down to Maui, where they were, where they were from uh, Yalorn North, which is just north of Maui. That's where they were returning to. And as they were going back down, they, they both saw the same row of orange lights in the sky. And this time, her husband acknowledged that he had seen it. And as they drove along, they saw this sheet of brilliant white light across the road, just like, think like a bed sheet, but a brilliant white 
light like that across the road. And as they drove through it at 100 kilometres an hour, they suddenly found themselves on the other side of a roundabout, which is a circular um, thing in the road where the cars can pass around, an easy way to give way. They were on the other side of this roundabout and they were now instantly going 40 kilometres an hour. So they'd passed through the sheep from 100 k's and instantly down to 40 and were feeling a bit stunned. And they drove home. There's two parts to this story. They drove home to Maui. And when they got home, they discovered that what should have been an hour and a half trip had taken three hours to get mm. home. And when they got home, they, they noticed that the car stunk of vomit, like a real putrid, sick smell was permeating the car. And she had a little triangular mark underneath her navel with a sharp, defined cut edge on it. And she started to feel really, really sick. That's the first part of the story. And that's, that's in terms of, of what they experienced consciously. So mm. that was their conscious experience. But as the, as the days and the weeks went on, it started, Kelly had a series of nightmares, um, a nightmare about something on top of her suctioning and a tall being being nearby. And they, they had these, these little, well, she started to have these little, little, little weird, strange things that were happening. And when it started to come back to them, they, so by the 16th of September of that year, so, you know, just a, you know, a week, week or a bit later, they were visiting friends and the topic of UFOs had come up again. And her husband related of what they had seen. And Kelly at this stage was still, apart from some dreams, didn't really have any details. But slowly over the next week, she began to remember. And it wasn't until a trip back up to her, another trip to her friend's house in Mombok, that it all came back in vivid details. And rather than go to bingo on the second trip, she sat down with her friend and began to recall what actually happened. So this is the, so that's what they consciously recalled at the time. Already, this is a complex case. Hmm. Then, a week later, or you know, a few days later, she's at her friend's house, and the whole thing comes flooding back. So she was very, uh, and that sort of became very, very stressful. So what happened? What actually happened? On the 7th of August, when they rounded the bend after they'd gone through the light, they had seen orange lights in the middle of the field, about 150 metres back, and it was the size of an Olympic swimming pool and as high as a two-storey house and brightly illuminated. And Andrew pulled the station wagon over. The road was pitch black and there was no moon or anything like that at all. And when he, when he turned off the headlights, the only light source was the craft in the field. And the craft was even bigger than what they had seen earlier that that night, that, that when they had seen it on the way on the way up on the first trip. And it also had blue and aqua light coming streaming down from underneath the craft. It was very beautiful, and the lights looked like they had a mist around each of the lights. Now this is where it gets interesting. Another car stopped behind the Cahill's car, 110 meters back. And a third car, 25 metres behind that, also stopped. And Kelly could see two people holding hands in front of the second car, and but they were only silhouettes. And Andrew and Kelly got out of their car, crossed the road over a stormwater drain, and they walked over to a fence, and I've stood at this exact spot. And they stood there for 30 seconds, bathed in this amazing light. And then from nowhere, a tall black figure appeared in front of the craft, really tall, skinny, black figure. And it was tall and a little misshapen. And the being began to move towards them from over 150 metres away. And in her head, Kelly heard a suggestion. And the suggestion was, in a, in a flat voice, let's kill them. Oh. And it was a suggestion that, that had no emotion or excitement. <laughs> and she, she said it was more like a discussion of options. But all of a sudden, there was not just one being underneath the craft illuminated by the blue light. There were seven to eight beings and possibly more. And this is what happened. This is what happened then. A low frequency shock wave came traveling across the field and it hit 
the people standing next to their standing next to their cars and against the fence. And it, it was like a bass amp at a rock concert. When you're standing at a rock concert mm-hmm. and you get that that booming bass, which we all love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this knocked her clean off her feet. And the wave passed through her body. Uh, and it was more like a horror inducing energy that passed through her body. And terror rose inside her and the be- and the, and all at once the being's eyes lit up a brilliant red. They all the all the eyes came on brilliant red. And Kelly screamed, they have no souls. And the groups split into two groups, the, the aliens split into, split into two groups, and they started charging across the field towards the witnesses. And they covered the distance of 150 metres in three seconds, not running but floating. And it was an instant reaction. And she described them as moving, not moving way better than an organised military unit would move. It was like everyone was thinking the same thing at the same time and it just happened in a really instant kind of a way. And the energy knocked them to the ground. And the red eyes were described as being being horrific. And it was the energy from the eyes that was that that she remembered very, very strongly. And she thought her thoughts were scrambled at having been knocked over. And a, one of these tall figures appeared instantly before her. And she felt a blow and she was on the ground, dazed, confused, winded, all that sort of thing. And she could only hear her husband telling the creatures to leave me alone. And they, she put her hands between her knees and she, and she was just physically sick. And the creature spoke to her in a clear, non-accented voice. And it came out with, we mean you no harm. But she described the voice as dripping with sarcasm. And that this creature was fond of using cliches and used them throughout its address with them. So it was really, really strange. And Andrew asked, her husband asked, why did you hit Kelly? And the response was, I wouldn't harm her. After all, I am her father. And Kelly, she screamed at the creature. She said, "Uh, you are not my father. I hate you. You are evil over and over. And Kelly said it it was as if it was as if she was being mocked. And it had its little joke, chuckling, and it was, and it was just. And after that, she basically blacked out. So, that's the conscious recall that she actually had. Now, so here we've got. Now, let me just uh, let me just interrupt you for a second there. So she had this all through regression or something like that, or how did she recall no, this? And, and what about Andrew? Yeah, well, it started to come. It, it it all it all came back to her at this one at this one session uh, at her at her friend's house when it was like the the memory blockers had been uh, released or or melted away, and yep. suddenly this instant recall came back to her about the horror of the event. Now at home, she had been really sick. She started bleeding menstrually out 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 of the time of her cycle, uh, very heavily. And she ended up going into into hospital with a with a uterine infection. Hmm. Uh, so all this had happened as well prior to prior to the, uh, the the awakening, which you could call it, of of this of these actual you know what happened to her. Hmm. So so that's the that's the that's the brushstroke story of what of what actually occurred. And then she did do some regressions after that, but that all kind of gets a bit a bit lost to the to us as being able to access that side of it and i know uh, a, a lady who 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 helped her during that time i know her personally as well and uh, and it was an extremely traumatic experience but incredibly this is where the story starts to derail from from this point onwards in that she now wanted to try and get some help and she started calling universities, um, observatories, the Civil Aviation Authority, the RAF, she's, which is the Royal Australian Air Force. She started making phone calls. I've got to try and get tell someone about this experience. And they all told, basically, they all pretty much dismissed her, as you could imagine they would back then. But the Civil Aviation Authority gave her Bill Chalker's phone number in Sydney. So Kelly was in Melbourne. And Bill's based in Sydney. Long-time Australian researcher. Many people who are listening would probably be aware of Bill and his work. Uh, really, really good researcher. But Bill was stuck up there, and he knew that he wouldn't. He wasn't going to be able to handle that case 
with all its intricacies, you know, everything from what happened to Kelly and Andrew all the way through to finding the other witnesses. So he thought, who can I, who can I offer this case to? So he, he contacted John Orcatel. Uh, I just have to interrupt you real quickly for a second. There's someone pounding on my studio outside my pounding, trying to get in. They're locked out or something. So please continue on. I got to let them in. And Beth, yeah, please sure. continue on. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so he he passed the the, the whole uh, responsibility for the investigation onto uh, onto John Ocatell, uh for, P- for his group was PRA. Now John being in Melbourne contacted Kelly and they started talking about the events and John also instantly put ads in the local paper and he worded them in a very specific way so that people would understand uh, so people who'd been at that who'd been at that encounter would know the cues that he'd put into the ad and he very soon he started to get some responses and the first car came forward and those people were known as Bill Jan and Glenda and later on the third car was also found with one male in it. Now, the other witnesses, they all recounted similar similar experiences, which became interesting. But the problem becomes that none of the additional witnesses have ever come forward publicly. So no one has been able to talk to uh, Bill, Jan or Glenda or the other man. They've, they've just never come forward in, in the 30 years since. That makes the story hard to actually verify. But John, in his investigation, went to the, to the location and he also found burn marks on the ground. And they also found some strange trace readings in that location. So as much as we can argue about the fact, is this a genuine case or not, there was physical trace evidence in that field at that time. So that can't sort of readily be dismissed. The rest of it after that becomes a lot more convoluted and and difficult. So Bill was kind of shut out of it at that point too. So he was never able to get back into the case as a result. And Kelly... Ultimately, the frustration had come out in her as well, with with the way the case had been had been um, handled. I think she became sort of disillusioned with the whole thing. But at the same time as that, she'd also become a real public figure, and had done many talking tours in Australia. And she also went to America, and she did a, a tour over there uh, in in the year or so after that as well. So she was very, very high profile. And then all of a sudden that fame became way too much for her. And she decided that she was going to jettison the whole, the whole thing. And she even got rid of her UFO records, everything. And she disappeared off the radar. Wow. Mm. So, so that was, that. and you've tried to, you've tried to reach out to her. You said, yeah, I've reached out to her and I and, I've, and I, I have met her and I and I know where she is and I I reached out to her. I, I mean, I have I've never I'd never met her beyond a real brief sort of meeting, and I reached out to her to try and say, look, after all these years, it'd be fantastic just to touch base, mm-hmm. just to see what's been happening for you over the last thirty years. Not turn it into a big, you know, a big um, song and dance again. Let's just touch base on how you're going uh, and if, and has anything else happened since that time? And that was, that was my intention and approach with her. And I, and I wanted to approach her from a, from a friendly angle and she hasn't replied to me in terms of being willing or interested to come out. And, and I knew that anyway, I knew that she had, that she has disowned the whole thing and not, and is not interested in talking about it. But I thought if you don't ask, you don't know. Now, what about the other people? We only know their first names, right? That's part of the problem too, is that we've only got pseudonyms to deal with. Because uh, me as an me as an investigator, you, you just gotta give me something small, tiny, a whiff of smoke, and I will go out there and I will dig and turn the earth over to see what I can find. Mm. But 
when you, all you've got is three first names that aren't their real names, you've got nowhere to go. And what about so that, her husband? Did he ever talk about what he and what his experience was that particular night? He was he was actually a Muslim, uh, and he was never he never spoke about it publicly, hmm. ever. He didn't do a single interview. How about never. in her book? No, no, because the, the book is written purely from Kelly's perspective. It's basically out of print now and very hard to find. I've got I've got two copies, but it's very it's very hard to track down. And the book is written from her perspective. Now the book's an interesting read, but you can't take that book as being the gospel. Hmm. And the reason I say that is because it's, it's it's written from one perspective with very little ability to research and probe into it. So I tore that book apart for, for whatever I could find in there. I knew she lived in Yulon North. I Google walked every street in Yulon North. And I had a picture that she had placed on a local buy, swap and sell uh, for a car that she was selling. And I walked up and down Yulon North <laughs> trying to find mailboxes and brick patterns and everything that looked like where she would be. Hmm. And I and I didn't have any success, so she was very, um, you know, very, very difficult to find. But but funnily enough, is that she's not actually that far away from me. So that was good too. She could have moved anywhere in the world, and everybody moves to Queensland here, you know. <laughs> so um, but that but that didn't happen. So you know, and I still really would love to have the opportunity to sit down and have a discussion with her. It doesn't have to be a podcast even. I'd, I'd be happy just to talk to her one-on-one about the entire the entire event. Now, I have spoken to both Bill Chalker and John Ocatell about it as well at different times over the years, and I know both of them pretty well. Uh, and you've still got relatively limited information as well. Bill's limited from the fact that he doesn't have the information, and John still because he wasn't able to complete the report the way that he wanted to do it, he's, he's still very reluctant to discuss that case. And I've respected that desire in him to do that because he doesn't really want to talk about it. Hmm. Wow. So it's another thing. It's another one of those encounters. That's a big, huge question mark as, as a lot of them are, but it had, <laughs> did she ever talk about any other physical issues other than yes. what she went through? Yes. So she had a whole host of strange, strange events that sort of occurred to them um, over the over the time, you know, like right back before they actually uh, even had the recollection, there were strange things happening around the house. So there was, there was some paranormal activity hmm. that was occurring. And so she, she was having extremely strong dreams, you know, Loud noises and bright lights would cause her extreme distress. So she couldn't handle that. So, you know, if a truck went past or, you know, someone's headlights were shining, that was all those PTSD type of effects mm. that she was that she was actually having. You know, the dreams were extremely strange, you know, like um, and there was one one incident that she had where she went to bed about 3 a.m. and she awoke and recalled a dream involving UFOs and entities. And in her dream, she recognised one of the beings as someone familiar and trusted, although she did not know who the being was. But she had the idea that this being was the keeper of her soul. And on the table Hmm. for the being was a Bible, which she recognised as one of her own Bibles, because she was actually a Pentecostal Christian, and she may still well be. And the being told her that she could come with him but she had to leave the Bible behind or she could just leave with the Bible. And this made her distrust the entity. This is the dream. And she thought that he must be satanic to ask her to give up the Bible. So her whole her whole uh, framework was, was coming from a Pentecostal background. Hmm. And as if the entity could read her mind, it handed her the Bible but seemed disappointed by her decision. So that was one of the strange dreams that she had, huh. you know, yeah. And plus the suction dream, electrical items, TVs behaved oddly, turning on and off. The starter motor in the car um, would turn over without anybody near it. So she received electric shocks from wood, stone, soil, all those type of things. So there was a lot of extra paranormal stuff that was going around. But, again, none of this is verifiable. 
Well, you know, uh, it's funny you hear about, I mean, I've heard about things like that. I had uh, Melanie Kirch, Kirchendorfer, Kirchdorfer, uh, from the Berkshires UFO uh, encounter. Um, I talked to her, visited her at her house with a friend, and she has things like that happening around her, electrical yes. things. She actually showed me a, a video of her like being near a lamp and the lamp flashing off and on, you know what I mean? Like all these weird things happening constantly um, ever since that encounter. That's, I mean, Heidi, just another big mystery, you know, how could these things happen? Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and I just want to sort of go back to, okay, so we've got this sort of this testimony of, of various things that happened and we kind of have to take it on good faith that you either believe that it did or it, or it didn't happen, you know, like people will say, oh, yeah, I fully believe that happened to her. I say, no, that's all a bunch of rubbish. But the ground trace evidence sort of does provide some level of support to that, you know. Right. So John searched the searched the field for traces of chemicals, electromagnetic traces. He measured distances and he photographed everything. Specialised aerial photography was used and John conducted 11 inspections of the site and wow. Kelly assisted him during two of those inspections, pointing out where everybody had been, including the beings and the UFO. A computer grid image of the magnetic anomaly at the site showed a semicircular impression, which matched the shape of the craft, and the ground had been Sweet. baked under high pressure, and there was a triangular mark as well as the traces corresponding to perceived landing tripods. So there were marks in the formation about 18 feet apart, and they corresponded with a tripod that had been drawn beneath the object, actually out in the field. And the whole area was laced with a sulfur chemical called pyrene, often found in coal, and it was present, though it should not have been there. And additionally, there was tannic acid contained in some sort of a coating was present in the semicircle, but not elsewhere. And the, the vegetation in the crescent area had shown signs of being subjected to abrasion. So... Wow. So, so I that's take that's, pretty heavy duty trace evidence there. That's heavy duty trace evidence. There's only a couple of photographs that have been released um, that John has released. Uh, not not many at all. But there are photos that exist of the burnt patches on the ground. And, um, you know, and I've been out there many times to that location. I've been out there so many times. Now it's completely built out. But back in 1993, it was there was it was pretty much just fields. But you go there now and houses have encroached everywhere out there there's all these little hobby farms out there and it's just not what it was back then hmm. but you can imagine what it must have been like on a cold august night in 1993 hmm. wow yeah that's that's pretty that's a really interesting case i'm glad you finally talked uh found someone to talk about it and yeah. uh yeah and i understand you know this happens a lot where people they they don't want to talk about it anymore they're done and, you know, but they sometimes come back. I mean, Travis Walton was that way for a while. He didn't ever want to talk about his encounter. He was all done with it. And then he retired and decided, OK, time to talk about it. You exactly. Know? And, and, yeah. And, uh, and and Calvin, Calvin Parker. That's right. So, yeah. You know, just exactly the same. And, and, I, and I really because often we've got nothing except the, the historical record of, of the UFO phenomenon. And when these witnesses come out and they discuss it and they're happy to bring it out and let's revisit it again, that's a really good thing. Uh, and recently uh, on my show, I discovered a, uh, I'd found through a fellow researcher, George Simpson, uh, he had a, a lost tape of another really extraordinary, strange UFO encounter. And we were able to bring that out on my show and have the first-hand witnesses' voice had never been heard publicly in over 50 years his recorded interview of, of that experience. And this is when you can find this information, when these witnesses decide to talk again, that's where we get our, our the value out of the, out of the UFO phenomenon because the record, the historical record, is where I believe the, the answers lie as well. They lie in the historical record and they show us what's happened. They also show us that with the historical record, you've got what happens in the future can relate to the history. Right. Well, you know, like you just mentioned, the Pascagoula case has now there's that happened back in 1973 in Pascagoula. And now there's more witnesses that have actually come forward and they're they're actually 
uh, able to document that these people were in that area at that time. And so it's it's pretty interesting how when something gets brought back up again, you know, that, uh, some people complain, like, why do you talk about old cases? But mm. a lot of times when you talk about old cases, something new comes to light. And oh, I think it's important. Exactly. I've just done on my last episode. I've just done, just recorded this morning is about Kempsey, New South Wales, which had an extraordinary flap of UFOs in 1971. And people say, well, that's old news. Who cares about that? And I say, well, it's not happening now. You know, hmm. it happened back then, but not now. We need to know what happened. We need to know where it happened. And it's an incredible story. It's probably, I would say, go close to saying uh, from a newspaper perspective, probably one of the most singly reported uh, local newspaper investigations done by the local paper, and they did it from a serious and uh, level-minded perspective. So the past is important. We, it's You've got to go there because... All the stuff that happened in the past is brilliant. It's fantastic. I wish I wasn't a child in the 70s. I wish I was an adult <laughs> so that I could have been there in a more realistic way to investigate it back at that time. But no, I was, you know, five, six, seven years old back then and nothing you can do at the time when these events were occurring. But now we're not seeing these type of encounters occurring now. We're not seeing these great things from the past. It just doesn't seem to happen. And even in, in the modern world, the 21st century, with all the phones and the cameras and everything out there, we're still not capturing the level of intensity that occurred, I would say, during the 60s, 70s and 80s. Do you want to talk about, since you just touched on that, I was going to ask you to when to move on. I was going to ask you, you know, what's going on currently and, and maybe we'll get a chance for that. But since you just mentioned this 1971 or whenever it is, uh, flap or whatever, Give us a little more details, if you would. Oh, no problem at all. This, this, this is a, this is a. I, I well, first of all, how I found it was I've got a, a heap of old records that I, um, old newspaper clippings that I was fortunate enough to be able to get about five or six years ago, which was remnants of the old Viewforce, the Victorian UFO Research Society's records. I managed to get my hands on a couple of old filing cabinets, and I pulled out these, and I got vast quantities of yellowing old newspaper articles, and I've. And I found one bunch and it was all stapled together. And I just started reading it and I thought, this is incredible. This is New South Wales, Kempsey. Kempsey is north of Sydney, north of Newcastle. Um, so north coast, New South Wales. And just in April, April 1971. Now, April is an important month, as is October. Because with April in Victoria, not the same year, but the same month, uh, we had the Westall encounter, the schoolyard encounter in April, and we had the Burke's mm. Flat Bending Headlights case oh, also yeah. in April. Right. So, yeah. so same month, not same year, but same month. And I'm always looking for those type of type of you know crossovers and things. Well, so April's a big month for UFOs. So in April, the whole thing kicked off with a man complaining that he had been sucked out through his kitchen window, 1971. He'd gone to the sink to get a drink of water. He saw a small face, a small, strange, round face pressed up against the glass. And as he saw that, he was inverted horizontally and he passed out through this small window. And the window broke and he landed on the ground seven feet below. He did not hurt himself. From He had a cut on the hand and a, and a minor abrasion, but he, he leaped up instantly. He didn't have any physical effect other than a small cut and he was terrified and his wife came running in this is the start of this flat right his wife came running in and she saw him horizontally pass through the window and he fell down and he was terrified that kicked the whole thing off then there was a series of, of entire incidences around the entire Kempsey district for the rest of that month and successive months as well and even into 1972 to the point where, and some other examples from that particular flat was uh, north of Kempsey is another little town and three schoolboys were, were waiting for the post office to open in the morning and they saw this silver object descend rapidly out of the sky and it came down over their heads and they could see a row of windows around it and these legs came down from underneath with these landing pads on each on these four legs and the thing sort of came over the top of them, banked and and it moved away, and they were terrified. One example. 
Another example was fishermen standing on the coast not far from Kempsey, also in the same month. They had parked their car, walked two miles up the beach, started fishing. They saw a strange orange light out in the sky and they could hear this incredible grinding sound like gravel being crushed. And if you've ever heard gravel being crushed, it's a very noisy process, but Mm. they described it as 10 times louder than gravel being crushed. And they were scared and terrified and they picked up their fishing rods and they ran back to their car and went to the car. And as they were got to the car, they could still hear the grinding sound and they jumped in the car and they bolted off. They could still hear the grinding sound. And that happened twice to one of the men. He'd been fishing in the same spot at another time and he, he had a very similar experience. So it was so that's the type of thing. And there's other sightings around the place where people were seeing describing brilliant brilliant light, beautiful colours, uh, travelling around the town, across the town, and it became a really, really intense flap. And I've, I've, it's going to be a two-part show. I've done part one, uh, and it's going to be part two when I, when I get onto that. But that's just a brief snapshot of that, and you could talk for an hour about Kempsey alone. Amazing. And makes you wonder, so it just stopped in that area? I mean, everything stopped? Fizzled yep. out. Yep, stopped like as, the, as these as these flaps do. Like they mm-hmm. they will go for a period of time, and things will come back over repeated nights, and people will see even see the same light in the same spot on successive nights. There was landing circles in paddocks, or we call them paddocks, but fields yep. in America, I suppose. Um, out there, there, there was uh, burnt circles found in. There was practically everything. There was dogs upset. There were ducks and geese upset. There was <laughs> there was just a full gambit of everything happening in a concentrated area in northern New South Wales at that time. Now, is that happening now? No, it's not. How about that? Someone has a question here. Uh, They want to know, have you heard of the Lake Gosford UFO incident in Australia in 1994? Yes, that's another brilliant, brilliant, absolutely brilliant case. And that was covered really well in a documentary called Oz Encounters. So if everyone who's listening wants to hop onto YouTube and Google Oz Encounters, there was a that magnificent O-Z? video. OZ? Yeah, OZ. Yeah, OZ. Yeah. Oz. OZ, as in the Wizard of Oz. Oz um, Encounters. And you watch that documentary, it covers the Gosford incident. And that was a really great occurrence because around the, the lake there, there's people living on the lake, and many witnesses saw this object come down out of the sky and it hovered over the lake and it started sucking water up into it you've just got to watch the documentary to see the even the graphics i know, I know of the one i know of the case good yeah. for 1993 yeah. I'll, I'll happy with those graphics for 1993 you'd kill it in, two, in 2022 yeah yeah there's a few cases where people have witnessed like water getting sucked up out of a lake and and oh, then look. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and even in my own area, there's a famous case called the Rosedale water tank incident. And that was regarded, and that's only an hour from my house. That was regarded as one of the singular best UFO encounters in Australia too, because it had a reliable witness. It had spooked animals. It had ground trace evidence, and it had two additional witnesses to it. And this UFO, the short version is this UFO uh, farmer woke up at one o'clock in the morning. All these animals were going absolutely ape. He went outside and he saw what he thought was a plane coming into land, but he noticed that it wasn't a plane, had no wings, and it flew out over his paddock and it hovered over one of his water tanks, open water tank. And he hopped on his bike and he drove, rode the bike out close to it. And the object landed on top of the water tank. It sat there for, for, a, few, for a few seconds, not long. It took off, landed down next to the, the tank on the ground, spinning on the ground. It sends out a pulse wave that, that, that knocks him senseless. And it takes off. And the next day, the entire water tank, 10,000-gallon tank, had been drained bone dry of water, and all there was in the bottom was a swirled up um, uh, silt had been swirled up about half a metre off the bottom of the tank. It would take 24 hours to empty the tank. And Jeez. and this object was seen by a truck driver on the highway, and it's right next to the highway. I pass this water tank every time I go to Melbourne. And... It was right on there, and a girl at the local shop had looked out the window and seen seen this object as well. The, the cows were spooked for a week; they couldn't get the cows to do anything after that. Wow. And that was, and that's another example of, of a really. So, is that happening now? No. 
but you never know. Someone just just wanted to say hi from uh, listening in Melbourne. Felix. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Hello, hello yeah. to Felix. Felix. Yeah, hello, yeah. Felix. Yeah, Hope a few people have uh, happened to be in the chat from there. So yeah, oh wow, these are really great cases. And that that water tank that is that's a real that's that's fantastic, amazing. <laughs> The Rosedale water tank, if you if you see the thing is like now that we've got these podcast shows, we can talk about all these brilliant Australian cases that just are not known in America. They they just really aren't known. You know, we all know about the mm -hmm. great cases that are around the world, but there's a lot of really good, high quality, high strangeness Australian UFO encounters. And that's that's what I've been working on for the last twelve years. Yeah, I like uh, the bent headlights one, but unfortunately we're we're just about out of time. We just have a couple of minutes left. But that one is fantastic. Um now, I believe I, you and I discussed that. Uh, I think we did. Ago. I think we did before the, the last time. So you're actually on a you're on a radio another radio. So you're streaming live on a weekly basis. Uh, that's correct. Yes, yes. So and, and you can put that plug out there. Don't 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 be shy. <laughs> <laughs> well, a few years ago, I did have I did have a show on KGRA, uh, which was the Ben Hurl show, which was doing the similar stuff that I'm doing now, but. But now I've got a new show called uh, Unexplained Phenomena Australia. And the good thing about that show is that I have expanded it beyond UFOs. So I can talk yowies. I can talk ghosts. I can talk yeah. anything under the sun. And I've, and I've covered some really strange stuff on my show. And uh, that's, that show is on the UNX network. And it's on at 7 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday nights in America. And it's and if for those in Australia, it's 9 a.m. Thursday, uh, which, which is when it's right. And you're not, that's not a live show, that's pre recorded. That's pre recorded. I just do pre records yeah. because I work a 50, 60 hour a week full time job. I know. And you were so, I have to do pre records. So grateful that you actually you asked for time off from work to be here. And I really do appreciate that very much. No worries at all, Martin. Anytime. Be, there's lots to discuss. That's right. And it's always fun talking to you, Ben. Really enjoyed it a lot. So you take care. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. All right, everyone. So we're going to be back next week with Kevin Day. And uh, like I said before, there's a lot going on in the next few weeks. It should be a lot of fun. And thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.